0: good? All right, perfect. All right. In school, I was taught a good story answers five questions. Who, what, when, where, and how. The five fingers of a good story. So let's just go and give it a shot. Here goes. Who, TLC. What, gathered together to worship Christ. When, on Sunday, June 12th. Where? Anaheim, California, in the sanctuary, and how? I imagine you guys probably drove here, so probably through cars. And yet, even though these are the five fingers to a good story, even though this is how you make your writing clear, direct, and concise, we still feel like there's something missing. We all wanna know the answer to the question, why? Asking why questions is a fundamental part of being human. And I'll go as far as to say that if you don't ask the question why, if you don't know the why, then you don't really get the full story. So let's go ahead and give it a shot. Here's a couple examples. Number one, there's a boy that's in the freezing ocean in the Atlantic holding onto a doorframe, and he lets go and he drowns. Sounds like a terrible story, right? He just killed himself. Until we ask the question why. It's because the doorframe can't handle two people. And so Jack lets go to let Rose live. Right? Here's another one. Bambi, the white-tailed deer, befriends a skunk and a rabbit in order to reclaim the forest from the hunters that killed his mom. But why? Why did the author write the story? It's because the author wanted to portray what it was like to be a Jew under, in Europe during Nazi Germany. It suddenly changes the you know, complete way you read Bambi, right? One last one a group spends nine hours returning jewelry. Why? Because if they don't return the ring, Sauron will resurrect and he will end the world. So all in all, knowing the why is important. If we don't know the why, you don't get the story. I'll go as far as to say that not knowing the why will cause you to think you know why you're here, but you don't get it. So why are we here together, church? Because the answer to that question has eternal consequences. Could it be that the reason you feel like the church has to entertain you, or maybe the pastor has to entertain you, or maybe the reason why you feel like you can't evangelize or have fellowship unless we have events or at retreats is because you don't know why we're here. You think you know because maybe you grew up at the church or you've been here long enough, but functionally, you don't know why. So that's the series for this season. Who is the church? Why are we here? I want to explore with you what the fundamental identity of the church is. And I want to spend a couple more weeks, or Tony will be spending a couple more weeks, unpacking what does that mean? What are the implications to the world around us? If you're asking, all right, Kevin, like, why is this series relevant to me at all? How is this going to benefit me? Three big reasons. Number one, if you are a Christian, this series is going to tell you, are you acting or are you living the lifestyle of a Christian? Two, if you, you know, you're not sure if you're a Christian, you might be. This series is gonna tell you if you truly are or if you're not. Lastly, if you're not a Christian or you have rejected Christianity, this series is going to tell you like what is it that you've rejected? Do you truly understand what you said no to? So let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna be looking at verses one through 10. So while you guys are turning there, quick context. The book of Ephesians is written by Paul. Paul wrote this, he's in jail. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a huge church. A lot of your favorite New Testament characters probably spent some time in this church. So Timothy, Paul, John. um, It's also the church that in Revelations, we all know, um, or you guys may have heard of, that God says you have lost your first love. So there's a lot happening in this church. And Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus. I'm gonna read from one through 10. So I'm reading the ESV. It might be the NIV up there. Either way, um, it's going to be the same text because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, you are good. I pray, Lord, that the word that we hear may be sweet. Where will we be without the gospel? Where will we be without your death, your resurrection? I pray, Lord, that today, as we gather, that we may have spiritual ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see, that when we gaze upon your beauty, that we may see you clearly, and that you may remind us why we loved you in the first place, why we saw you as so beautiful, so attractive. I pray, Lord, that through the book of Ephesus, that your word may not return void, that it may convict us, encourage us, and give us peace and comfort that can only come from you, Lord. Remind us again of why we're here. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so something that I like to do whenever I preach is I like to do something called a sermon in a sentence. So what that means is that if you take notes, it's basically your thesis, right? It's the one sentence that everything else is gonna surround around. And if you guys don't take notes, then it means that if you guys you know, fall asleep, you guys forget everything else I said, this is the one sentence to repeat. And you know, it'll sound like you know what you're talking about. The one sentence is, the gospel creates churches to display his divinity. The gospel creates churches to display his divinity. Yeah, the alliteration was on purpose. Point one, there's three points. Point one, the gospel resurrects. Point two, the gospel creates churches. And point three, the church displays divinity. All right, so point one. This is going to be the longest one. The last two are more shorter applications. Point one, the gospel resurrects. Verse one says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. All right, so you guys have all heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. All right, so let's never mind the words for a second. Let's talk about the sticks and stones. Can they really hurt you? Well, Stephen from Acts 7 will tell you yes. Stephen was a uh, evangelist and one of the first converts, right, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to evangelize to the city. He comes in, he shares his faith, and um, he's met with hostility. And the Jews end up picking up stones, and they kill him, making him the first martyr. Stephen was killed, but if we look at verse one, it was seen as the scripture is saying that, in a spiritual sense, Stephen was the only one there that was alive in the midst of a spiritual wasteland of zombies. So you might think of this image as dark and grim, but the best thing a doctor can do for you is to accurately tell you the diagnosis, like how your life was like before Jesus Christ. Um, Just imagine if you went to the doctor and you had cancer, and the doctor said, it's okay, it's just a temporary headache. Just take some Tylenol, you'll be fine. Like that's a terrible doctor, right? Because he's not telling you what you need to hear. And Paul here is telling you an accurate diagnosis For the previous lives of the Ephesian Christians and also of the entire world. Whether it's in the playground, school, or at the workplace, spiritual deadness is everywhere. Spiritual deadness is the reason why the Jews killed Stephen or Stephen. Spiritual deadness is the reason why Stalin killed or his regime killed over 20 million people. Um, Spiritual deadness is the reason why we've had over 200 mass shootings this year alone. It's not because of poverty, because think about it, rich people still sin. It's not because of politics, because regardless of where you're at, you still sin. It's not because of racism, because regardless of what race you are, majority or minority, you still sin. It's not about governments, because historically, every government sins. It's because of spiritual deadness, and there's not one righteous, not even one. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead, right? Luckily, we don't have to guess. Paul tells it to us in the next two verses. Let me go and read that out loud for us. This is verse two and three. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So being spiritually dead means that you're a son or daughter of disobedience, and you're following the prince or the power of the air. So let's go ahead and define some terms, because you know, if we don't know what these mean, none of this passage makes sense. So what does it mean to be the prince of the air? Like, does that mean you control hurricanes, like you're the avatar, you airbend? No, it's not. It's just a clever way of saying Satan, right? Air is something that's all around us, we don't see, but it's there. And Satan is the ruler of the corruption, the sins that are around us. He's the one that's leading the charge of disobedience. So what does it mean to be a son or daughter of disobedience? Is that some satanic cult that meets regularly? No, it's at one point all of us and the entire world. Everyone who's born, save Jesus Christ, is a son or daughter of disobedience. Um, Let me give an illustration. Like what does it mean to be a son or daughter of uh, disobedience? Um, A couple years ago, maybe about 10, 20 years back, there's a commercial with Kobe and Kanye. So Kanye's in the audience, Kobe's up in the front, and he's giving like a motivation speech, right? And Kanye looks up and says, how much more do you want from me? And Kobe says, I want more. Kanye says, how much more successful do you want me to be? And Kobe says, more successful. Kanye says, how much more records do you want me to break? Kobe says, more records. Kanye says, but I'm the best. And then Kobe says, but are you a different animal and the same beast? So that's basically sin, right? That's sin. It's always going to tell you to do more. No matter what you do, it's never enough. It's never satisfying, right? You got into Harvard, cool, what's next? Get a job. You got a job with six figures, cool, what's next? Get a higher paying job, get a house, make some revenue, right? Get some savings. To do what? To live comfortably for the rest of your life, maybe create a legacy for your kids, and then what? Die. There's not much to it. Right? You're obeying the next thing. Right? You're obeying comfort. You're enslaved to the world. So keep in mind, this doesn't mean that I'm saying that evil is something that's outside of you. Right? I'm not saying that evil is you just following the world. Evil is just following Satan. That's not the problem. The problem is that you're spiritually dead. It's an internal, it's a condition issue. If you're dead, you're dead. There's no way around it. Right? Imagine if there's like some guy who's dead in the ocean and I throw a, like, a lifeboat at him. He's not going to pick that up. If there's a guy who's dead in the ocean, I drag him out, got the best doctors to try to operate on him. There's nothing we can do. He's dead, right? In the same way, we were all at one point spiritually dead. Marine Robinson, the author of Gilead, describes this condition perfectly, right? One of the characters um, quotes, we human beings do real harm. History can make a stone weep. We're born sinners. We're born spiritually dead. We aren't sinners because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. We're born as spiritual zombies, obeying the powers of the world, obeying disobedience. And we don't even understand that we're spiritually dead, right? That's how we are. The spiritually dead man is unable to discern that they're spiritually dead. Um, Let me give another example. This is from a book called Cry, The Beloved Country. It's a South African novel by Alan Paton. In um, his character, he has this character named Stephen Kumalo. Stephen Kumalo is this aging black Anglican priest, and he's looking for a son. His son's name, Stephen, or sorry, my bad. His name is called Absalon. And he finds out that his son, Absalon, robbed this white man, and he's waiting trial to be killed. And so he goes over to visit his son, and he says, why did you do this terrible thing, my child? His son looks up at his dad and says, there's moisture in his eyes, he turns his head from side to side, he makes no answer. His dad says, answer me, my child. And all his son could say is, I don't know. We can relate with both the father and the son in this scenario. There's moments where we're shocked at someone else has sinned. How could you cheat on me? How could you lie to me? How could you do that? And there's also moments where we don't know why we've sinned. We don't know why we've done what we've done. We're unable to explain our own sins until we came to the foot of the cross. All right, so all of humanity is spiritually dead. So what? Well, the next couple of verses is one of the sweetest lines in all of Scripture. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 4 to the end of 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So notice the first three verses is all in the past tense, right, Um, and we're not used to that. We're not used to seeing the word dead in the past tense. We're used to seeing it in the future tense, you're going to die. We're used to seeing it in the present tense, yeah, he's dead. We're not used to seeing the word dead in the past tense. But what Paul is saying here is that's what the gospel does. The gospel resurrects spiritually dead men. Like, honestly, what is salvation? Let's just go ahead and unpack that for a second. What does it mean to be saved? It's not saying some magic prayer. It's not asking God to somehow enter your heart. right? Because what does that even do? What does that even mean? It's having faith in Jesus Christ and repenting. We know that because the thief on the cross didn't say the sinner's prayer. But we know he's in paradise with Christ. So, also... With that in mind, let's go and look at the idea of baptism, right? Like, what does it mean to be baptized? It's not like jumping into the water suddenly cleanses you and cleanses you and makes you saved, right? It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. When you get baptized, when you enter the waters, what you're saying is, in my sinful self, I don't deserve to come out of this water. In my sinful self, I deserve to die under these waters. But there's one person that deserves to come out. And that's Jesus Christ. And so when we repent and put our faith in him, what we're saying is, in some way, when Jesus deserves to walk out of those waters, when we're in Christ, in some way we're raised together with him. So our old sinful self stays in those waters and we rise with Christ as a new creation. Um, let me go ahead and read Romans 6, 3 to 4 really quickly. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If you're a Christian here today, you're here today because in some way you're able to look at Jesus when he died and you're able to say, I was there. You're here today because in some way, somehow, when Jesus resurrected, we're all able to look at him and say, I was there. The gospel resurrects dead men. All right, point two. The gospel creates churches. Let me say that again. The gospel creates churches. So verses 1 through 6 tells us the what, right, the gospel resurrects dead men and women. The next three verses that we're going to see, or four verses, it's going to answer the why. Let me go ahead and read verse 7 out loud for us. So that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So notice the pronoun here in this verse. We like to stress this idea of having an individual savior. Like, I have this personal relationship with God. But honestly, when you become saved, it's not just a one-to-one event. You're being saved into a body. You're being saved into a people. So think of it like this. Like, vertically, you're becoming good with God, right? You're getting a father. In the same way, horizontally, you're getting siblings. You're getting brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, So... The cross reconciles us not only to God, but it also reconciles us, or reconciles us to other people, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that break happens way back in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve bit the fruits, um, what they both realized was, if this other person can break trust with God, what's the chances of them breaking trust with me? And so we see this division happen amongst people, right? Cain and Abel, Saul and David, Gentiles and Jews. Um, until the cross, where we're finally reconciled and truly reconciled with each other because we're truly reconciled with Christ. Uh, Let me give an illustration, right? Uh, My professor once adopted his uh, son, right? And he brought this orphan child to his home. Just imagine how bizarre it would be if the orphan child looks up at my professor and his wife and says, yeah, you're my dad, you're my mom, but these other people here, yeah, they're housemates. Like, I don't want a sister. I don't want a brother. We're just doing life together. Like, that makes no sense. It doesn't work that way. When you get a dad, you also get the siblings. It's a package. I'm In mean, the same way, right Right here is a covenanted uh, gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. We share the same father, so we're siblings, right? And it's this gathering of covenanted uh, brothers and sisters that make up the church. Um, in the end of Thor Ragnarok, we see Thor, right? Flying off in a spaceship, Asgard is being destroyed, like blown up. And this one guy turns to Thor and says, Asgard is still alive because Asgard is not the place. It's the people. In the same way, the church is not a place. It's the people. It's the gathering of resurrected dead men and women. Resurrected men and women join churches not because it's good for you. You're not joining a church because um, it's good for you, it's healthy for you. You're joining a church because that's what you are. You're a brick in the temple. You're a body, you're an arm in this uh, gathering. Salvation is a corporate thing. It comes with a family photograph. The gospel just naturally creates churches. All right, last point. The churches display divinity. Let me say that again. The churches display divinity. So we have this resurrected group of people that just by gathering becomes a church, right? Um, and what does the churches do? The local churches display God's divinity. Let me go ahead and read from 8 to the end of 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when Paul's using the word workmanship here, he's referring to something like a beautiful poem, right? He's bringing in every church together a beautiful poem. And like every family, right, each member has chores to do. Like being a member of your church is like a job. You have responsibilities, you have chores, because we are his workmanship, we are his beautiful poem created for good works. And what happens when we do these good works? Well, it says here in the text that by fulfilling your good works, your responsibilities, God shows the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness. And this is being shown not just to us, but to the rulers, the principalities, to everything around us. Our local churches are just displaying, like exuding God's glory. So let's go over two short responsibilities that we're all called to do. Two chores that we're all called to do as a member of this family. Number one is to show up. It's to be present on Sundays. Um, Don't say you're a member of the family if you're never there for dinner. Don't say you're a member of the family if you never show up at any family gathering. There's a reason why the church felt a little off during COVID, right? There's a reason why the church feels a little off when we just only, all we do is only live stream the event. And that's not to say that, like, um, Jason or a Tech Booth took anything away, right? It was a privilege for us to see the service, um, but it felt off. And that's because the service isn't just sermon message prayer. Church isn't just those three things. The church is the people. It's a gathering, it's a community, it's having people next to you. So it should feel different if your brother's not at church. It should feel different if your uncle's not at church. Like that should be obvious, right? Second, our responsibility is to fulfill the one another's. So whenever the New Testament uses the word one another or brothers and sisters, they're referring to the local church. Um, so to, let's go in and just go over one of the examples, to love one another like Christ loves you. That's John 13:34. Let's just reflect, meditate on what that means. Because he uses a different language when he's talking about us loving um, our neighbors, our non-believers, the world. He says, love your neighbors like you love yourself. But you're called to love your brothers and sisters the way that Christ loves you. Do you see the difference in magnitude, right? So how does Christ love you? It's one more verse to kind of back that up. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So that's true, we do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You're called to love your whole congregation in a unique and different way from the way you love the world, in a much deeper way. So you might be thinking, all right, Kevin, like you're telling me to go love the church, love everyone here, but what if they're socially awkward? Or what if they gossip about me? Or what if they hurt me? Or what if we don't get along? Or what if they always say the wrong things at the wrong time? But the thing is, that's the beauty of it. That's the reason why it's different. See, that's what makes us different from the world. If the world, the world isn't surprised by a bunch of 20 to 30 year old Asians gathering together on a Sunday. Like that looks like everything else in the world. The world is surprised when we forgive each other, warts and all. The world is surprised when we don't burn bridges, when we hurt each other, and we're still able to forgive each other because Christ forgave us first. When someone wrongs us or annoys us, we don't just see that person, we see Christ in them first. Um, It's the quick way to represent this idea. Um, There's an anime I love called One Piece. And uh, without spoiling it too much, there's a character I really, really like called Senior Pink. His name's Senior Pink. So this guy marries this beautiful woman and has a child. The thing is that while he's off at work, the child ends up dying and the wife is heartbroken and hurt and so she blames the husband for not being there for being at work and so she runs away gets into an accident and falls into a coma and so senior pink rushes over finds his wife grabs his wife and takes her to the hospital and the doctors say she's going to be in this vegetative coma state for the rest of her life so he visits her every day brings her flowers Um, And one day by accident, he puts on a pacifier, right? Something that his baby had. And he sees his wife smile for the first time in years. She doesn't say anything, she just smiles. And so ever since that moment, every day he wears a bonnet, a pacifier, it's like baby clothes, because he wants to see his wife smile. People tease him, people make fun of him, but he still continues. He's willing to put down his pride because he wants to see the person he loves smile. Are you willing to lay down your self-regard at the cross to love your whole congregation the way that Christ loves you? Are you willing to show up? Are you willing to practice the one another's? others? And I get it, like this is hard. This isn't something easy. Like every family, our story is messy. But when the gospel brings resurrected men and women together and makes the church, even the messiness that we have points to the gospel points to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me read a short picture of how this looks like in the book, uh, Rule of Love. This is by Jonathan Lehman. It's a short picture of what a church looks like. Hundreds of these backstories, so backstories meaning like backstories of people, would collide and tangle up like a knot of vines. He offends her. She steps on their toes. He confronts that group. They struggle with gossip. This couple separates. This couple counsels. A young man asks for accountability. A young wife offers a meal. An older woman teaches the younger. An older man evangelizes. This family struggles financially. Another chooses to help. Little by little, somehow love would shine through the challenges. The obstacles to love would somehow become occasions to love. The members of this church would bear all things, believe in all things, hope in all things, and endure all things. We are that church. If you call yourself a Christian here today, you are the person that the gospel resurrected. You are what the gospel used to make this church TLC. And you are how God uses to display his glory to the world. So church, why are we here? We're here because we obey the one who chose to wash the feet of the one who would betray him. We're here because we obey the one who descended into the pits of death to rescue his enemies, sons and daughters of disobedience. So closing out with a quote, um, it's a pastor by the name of Greg Gilbert. He once said, so will you follow God on his way down the stairway of humility? Or will you pass him on your way up? So will you follow God as he serves others in humbleness, as he descends to serve others? Will you follow him as he descends to love the broken and the outsiders? Or will you pass him pridefully on your way up to glorify yourself? Let's pray, church. Father, I pray, Lord, that you may convict us.